0: Hi, this is Manesh Patel, and thanks for joining us on this podcast. Uh, this is a podcast uh, that I get to do with a friend and a colleague, uh, Rupert Barshocks. Uh, Rupert, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for doing it. Hi, Manesh. Hi, everybody.
0: Yeah, so, you know, Rupert, we were going to do this as a companion to um, an interesting symposium we had at ESC called The Beginning of the End for Noax, The Last Mile, sort of a, you know, a controversial topic. Is it really the beginning of the end? What is the last mile? You know, a lot of things that we wanted to cover that we might not have gotten the chance to. Uh, and, you know, 12, 12 years on for these drugs where there's a lot we've learned and there's still a lot to go. So maybe I'll start with the first question that we didn't quite get to in the symposium and see what your thoughts are, Rupert. You know, I expect that like a lot of the patients that you see in clinic with uh, venous thromboembolism or VTE are older and are sometimes considered frail. And I and a lot of people talk about frailty. And so I guess I want to understand what do we mean by that and how should we m- approach our management of these patients?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you perfectly right. The majority of the patients that I see with uh, PE or DBT are elderly, and uh, this is of no surprise, really, given the exponential increase of VTE incidence with age, uh, plus there is, and there will be, uh, a further increase, of course, with the uh, aging population. Now, this is age, and you mentioned frailty. That refers to a continuous dynamic process a syndrome with an age-related decline in several physiologic uh, systems, leading to impaired hemostatic uh, reserve. And, And so these patients become fragile, and that's commonly described as having renal impairment, GFR below 50, low body weight below 50 kilograms, and as we said, elderly above 75 years. And of course, they have increased medical burden, comorbidities, and The colleagues are often concerned about the bleeding risk, true. But in my daily practice, I commonly see that these patients also have a very high risk for suffering from PE or DVT or thromboembolism. So it's really a delicate balance, and we need effective yet safe anticoagulants for those patients. And and we do have very good evidence, for example, from the randomized controlled Einstein trials, remember there were two rivaroxaban trials, one for DVT, one um, dedicated PE trial, and the results show that there was very good efficacy in the fragile patients, and importantly, the risk for major bleeding was almost 75% lower with rivaroxaban um, in those patients above 75 years, and it was 80% lower in those patients with impaired renal function compared to VKA, with a significant hazard ratio of 0.21. And altogether, fragile patients had a significant reduction of major bleeding by 75%. So altogether, significant better net clinical benefit in those fragile patients.
0: Yeah, really powerful data from the randomized trial Einstein program, Rupert. And, you know, what a great program, not just in randomizing specific VTE. And then there's also, of course, Einstein Choice and an extension program that really tells us about how to continue with those patients. So really powerful, but, but what, you know, often I get asked, uh, randomized trial data is great, Manesh. Okay, so we know that. Now, how does it look in the real world when we start taking a lot of patients that might not have gotten into trials?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of um, real-world evidence. For example, there's a study by uh, Craig Coleman, published in the American Journal of Medicine, with almost 7,000 real-world frail patients, mean age, 82 years, so mean age, um, showing a significant 25% reduction in recurrent BTE or major bleeding with rivaroxaban versus warfarin, or in the Xalia study, also non-interventional prospective worldwide study, which enrolled, again, 15 to 20% fragile patients. So in summary, we do have Good evidence that NOAAX and Rivroxabon in particular are effective in the elderly and fragile population. And it's now our responsibility to ensure that these patients are treated appropriately and effectively and to close that gap between the evidence that we have and clinical care.
0: Yeah. that might be our symposium, right? As we think about the last mile how do we get the drug that's proven to our patients?
1: Yeah. Exactly. We have to close that, that gap. And, and I talked about my clinics with the VTE patients, and, and I'm sure that in your cardiology clinics, you must also see many older patients with AFib. How does, how does that affect your treatment decision? What are your considerations here?
0: Yeah, thanks, Rupert. You know, what's interesting is that uh, I'm not sure we still fully understand what atrial fibrillation is. We, we know it's an irregular heart rhythm in the top part of the heart, um, and some people have recently said, and I, I think this is interesting, you know that your left atrium, your left atrial size might be like the hemoglobin A1 c of your heart it's sort of a it's a sort of a long term measure of how your health is, and so when you get atrial fibrillation, it is a disease of the elderly it happens through age it is the most common dysrhythmia in cardiovascular medicine, and so I think understanding that it's an age related problem is important and of course as you age your rate of stroke and systemic embolism goes up and the balance between bleeding and stroke is something we all talk about in fact in rocket af when we when we did this study we we tried to enroll older sicker patients with the idea that when we did a randomized trial in older sicker patients compared to warfarin people would feel comfortable not only studying those and using those drugs in those older sicker patients but maybe in the younger and healthier ones too and so when Rocket AF was completed, as you all know now, you know, we had a median age that was up towards 73 with a Chad's Chad's two score of 3.5, and, and a significant portion, 43% or so of the patients of Rocket AF who were over 75 years of age. I remember when we were conducting that double-blinded study, we were thinking this may be the oldest outpatient ambulatory population study to date, you know, yeah. uh, almost half over 75 with AFib. And the subgroup of analysis of the elderly population did show us, in fact, that, that if anything, rivaroxaban had a more powerful substantive effect in the older patients with the hazard ratio that was more announced. And, and, and you know again, consistent with the overall trial results that said it was at least as good, if not better, than warfarin, less fatal bleeding, similar overall bleeding, which should give you comfort in our older patients because the 20 milligram dose, dose adjusted for renal insufficiency to 15 for those with a creatinine clearance reduction was really something I think we studied and found to be useful. So at least at the end of Rocket, we thought we had found a therapy that works in our older AF patients. Those patients that, are, as you said, when, when another way to measure frailty is that they're, they're, they're on a lot of drugs. They have heart failure, they have diabetes, they have to take a lot of pills, they have to keep it straight. Um, so more than five, more than 10 pills, then you add an anticoagulant. Um, so those types of patients were well represented in Rocket A.
1: Yeah, uh, we know that with a number of drugs, really the both the risk for um, you know stroke or VTE goes up, and the risk for bleeding.
0: Yeah, and and as you might come back to me, you might say, well, that's true, and you did it in a trial. And how's it look in the real world? <laughs> and so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, in a similar way, we we did after Rocket AF, look at several other sort of observational studies. Maybe the the one of the most important ones was a study called Xantus. Uh, that um, was conducted in Europe and parts of the world where patients were prospectively enrolled and followed when the therapy was going out. And again, not randomized, but observational study to see when you use the therapy and you use prospectively defined endpoints. Did we see similar types of finding? And if anything, in real real world practice, where patients maybe aren't as comorbid as they were in the trial, because we were o- overexpressing for that, we saw less bleeding rates and, and at least similar, if not lower stroke rates. And again, it helped us feel comfortable that the therapy is once you go into practice the same. And then I think, you know, another important sort of observational study, a study called Sapphire, actually looked at study patients um, that had that were over 80, 80 or, or older, you know, and, and studied them again in an observational cohort study of in 33 geriatric centers and, and looked to say, what did we see in the, in the, And the major bleeding rate was significantly lower with the river rivaroxaban-treated patients compared to warfarin-treated patients, 7.4 versus 14.6 per 100 patient years. Again, not randomized, but telling us, again, when we did multivariate analysis, propensity scoring, all the other things that our older patients seem to get a reasonable benefit. And so I, I think at least benefit in the sense that they're not bleeding as much, and the stroke protection makes us feel comfortable. So I think those two pieces of data are probably... Helpful in, when I think about how does the therapy work in our older patients?
1: Manish, we talked about the, the number of the high number of pills those patients have to take. Um, what about you know once or twice daily um, and, 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 and adherence, for example?
0: Yeah, another, another great point. And, and, and there's sort of two, two keys that we know, which is I don't think most people would argue that having to take a pill once daily versus twice daily increases adherence, and so most of us feel that it's important to have a therapy that patients can take, and once daily adherence seems high and important. There is a huge misconception in the field, though, Rupert, and this is what gets my blood pressure up and heart racing, if you will, <laughs> which is that there's a, there's a, there's a body of literature that, that, that existed before these data came out with once and twice daily, but a lot of my colleagues, because of maybe messages that aren't evidence-based, have said, well, you know, higher bleeding rates were seen in some of these populations because they were once daily and not twice daily. And twice daily dosing leads to less bleeding rates. And in fact, you know, what I, I highlight for people, and this is really critical, is that we actually know this in atrial fibrillation. And I think some of this may be because people think about a or Rivaroxaban. And, you know, one of the things we've shown with the VKA data and VTE data and then the VKA with the VTE or with the uh, AFib patients is that the patient risk drives a lot of the bleeding risk. The older, sicker renal function you have, the higher the bleeding rate is. In fact, from a doxiban, which was neither a rivaroxaban or or obviously a fixaban, but the doxaban phase two study studied around 1,200 patients with atrial fibrillation and used the exact same total daily dose, 30 milligrams twice daily or 60 milligrams once daily, and then VKA and used other doses too and looked at both peak and trough levels and area under the curve. The area under the curve was exactly the same the peak in the trough was a higher peak in a lower trough with 60 versus 30, so more consistent dosing with twice yeah. daily, but, but the bleeding rate was higher with twice daily compared to once daily, and that is, in fact, why a doc's band chose the 60 milligram dose. So when pay, people tell me that the bleeding rates are driven by things they recognize or PKPD, I just... I'd say we have to be humble because the drugs don't work as they studied them in medical school. They work in humans, and that's why we do the trials.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: So nevertheless, I think it's important to think about once daily versus twice daily, and once daily does help with adherence. But maybe I'll ask you, you know, all the studies investigating these, these DOAX or NOAX and AFib, they've, been, they've all enrolled adult patients. However, VT can affect our younger patients, and we have to be make sure they're treated effectively. You know, this is something maybe we didn't have time to touch on in our symposium, but we have evidence to guide our, our, our decision-making, I believe. And, you know, do we have evidence on choosing the right regimen for our younger patients with VTE?
1: Yes, Manesh, I mean, this is really a big problem. And, and the anticoagulation in, pedi- in pediatric uh, populations, it's a very difficult topic. Um, and um, in previous guidelines and recommendations, For example, the classical, for the classical anticoagulants like VKA, low molecular weight heparin, unfractionated heparin, these recommendations were based primarily on extrapolations from adult studies. So we did not have real studies on pediatric populations. Now, with the Einstein Jr. study and the Rivaroxin-Bahn label for the use in children, this fortunately has changed completely for the first time. We now have an in-label treatment covering. Just imagine a 10-day-old newborn with 2.6 kilogram receiving 2.4 milligram rivaroxaban in-label, uh, up to adolescents who, depending on their weight, almost receive adult dosages. So 500 children were studied in Einstein Junior, and the primary efficacy uh, endpoint occurred in 1% in with rivaroxaban versus. 3% in on the standard of care, non-significant hazard ratio of 0.4 for rivaroxaban. Putting together with major bleeding, the endpoint occurred in 1% with rivaroxaban versus 4% um, with standard care, significant hazard ratio of 0.3 uh, for rivaroxaban. Also, the overall thrombotic burden was reduced significantly with rivaroxaban. And even though many of us will not treat very small or young children. I think these are really landmark results because it also provides a very good assurance for other vulnerable patients uh, in favor of uh, rivaroxaban. And and if you treat newborn with a rivaroxaban, I think that's the ultimate. <laughs> that's the amazing
0: ultimate and it's great. Yeah.
1: And and b- moving from, from that vulnerable. Population to um, some other challenging population. We mentioned that our young patients still receive VKA low molecular heparins or unfractionated heparin um, because of the limited evidence that we have in sh- had in children, I should say. But we often see uh, many of the other vulnerable patients, like cancer-associated thrombosis, still being treated with low molecular heparin despite the fact that we have multiple studies investigating NOACs, and why do you think this is the case, and, and what does the evidence tell us um, about how we should treat those patients with CAP?
0: Well, yeah, thanks, Rupert. Like like most of our podcasts here, you know, changing human behavior is hard, and so sometimes <laughs> it takes evidence, it takes belief, and, um, and hopefully, you know, it's not because It just takes change and changes, changes something that we're getting at. You know, as you said, this gap, um, you know, these agents first started being shown to be better than vitamin K antagonists in 2010, 2011, you know, 2022, 10, 11 years on this, is the first year, as we said in this symposium, where more than 50% of the people for conditions like AFib might not get vitamin K antagonists worldwide. So it takes us 10 to 11 years. Yeah to adopt therapies and sometimes that last mile is to those most complicated. You just talked about those young kids where of course there's dosing concerns and so there's some evidence needed. Cancer associated thrombosis, as you said, is a a different issue, which is an important one, which is there are three things we often think about when we're taking care of these patients, which is the prevention of recurrent VTE, um, protection from bleeding because these patients are at high bleeding risk and then patient preference because unfortunately these are patients with often malignancy that may or may not be curable And having to take low molecular weight injections versus potentially taking oral therapy might be a really a difference for them in their quality of life. And so we know that some of our highest risk patients, in fact, those patients with GI malignancies, you know, the pancreatic cancers and the GI cancers that have the highest thrombotic risk are some of the people that might benefit the most. We have a variety of data as the River Oxband group has put out the the Callisto program, including select over 3,000 patients with cancer-associated thrombosis have been studied, and so that's that's a pretty powerful amount of patients that have been studied. And you know, in some of these studies that have followed, you know, it seems at six months that the rates of, of VTE are very similar to the rates of of with with uh, low molecular weight heparin. We've also seen, as you as you may have highlighted, recent observational data something called OSCAR UK or OSCAR US, and even a Mayo Clinic Prospective Cohort study, and when we look at those data, again, the VT recurrence rates seem to be similar, if not lower, with rivaroxaban numerically, not statistically, but from a patient's perspective, at least as good, if not numerically better, is pretty important. Significant bleeds, again, seem to be numerically similar. Even even some of the fatal bleeds and major bleeds are less. Maybe some of the minor mucosal bleeding could be more The all-cause mortality, again, not statistically different, but observed to be numerically less. So I I think that, you know, the the way I think about this space, like a lot of the things we've talked about, is that there's a wealth of data. I've just told you about a few of the observational studies, but there there are many more, even with patients who have an acute, you know, VTE that are coming and getting treated and followed. And this is in addition to the data we had from Einstein and, of course, those large programs. We've taken what I'll call the large randomized trial data, even done smaller randomized trials into some of those areas where we hadn't studied, and then large observational studies around those areas, and still continue to see patients both in randomized data and observational data to get benefits, especially in some of these cancer-associated thrombosis. In fact, in the, in the patients with GI cancer, it, it seems whether it's total luminal GI cancers, pancreatic cancers, hepatobiliary, these are some of the, the highest risk patients River Oxband seems very favorable, even when compared to not just enoxaparin, but sometimes with other DOACs like apixaban. So, I guess the message for me would be: um, this is one of the places where the patient preference, the understanding of their life course, excess bleeding, and recurrent thrombosis risks are critical. Um, but it's it, you know I, I think that hopefully people have gotten a sense from our podcast here. It's been a, you know lively discussion. We've done a lot of things. So, you know, how do we treat the older? How do we treat the younger? <laughs> how do we how do we how do we make sure we know that the older are getting better? Um, what about cancer-associated thrombosis? What are modifiable risks? These are all things we learn and hopefully get us from that first mile to that last mile to our patients. So uh, we hope all of you have enjoyed listening to this, Rupert. Thank you, and uh, we hope you guys tune in for some of our other podcasts. This podcast is funded by Bayer AG, and the approval code is M A M R I V A L L. 12361. The views and opinions expressed throughout this podcast are those of the speakers based on their expertise and do not necessarily reflect those of buyer.